invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, 18. And as you turn, let me pray for us. Father, as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Eucharist, the table of thanksgiving, the bread and the cup, we ask that as we just reflect on your word and what you have done for us through Jesus, that, Lord, our hearts would be moved to delight in our Savior, to treasure him above all other things, to treasure him above life itself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, today is what we call Good Friday. This day, every year, Christians gather to worship God and devote their time, their minds, and hearts to pondering the death of Jesus. But why call it good? What was it that possessed the church to call it Good Friday? Nothing about this day was good when you look at the events that preceded this day and the events that occurred during this day and the people that were involved. When you look at this day, observing the humans that were involved, one could easily call this Dark Friday or Bad Friday. From the religious leaders plotting to have Jesus murdered, from Judas agreeing to betray Jesus for a measly 30 pieces of silver, from the disciples all abandoning Jesus in his darkest moment, and from Peter utterly convinced that he would be willing to die with Jesus only to discover that to save his own neck, he would be willing to deny Jesus three times. Then you think about all the witnesses who bore false witness about Jesus and the religious leaders striking Jesus and mocking him and, and spitting on him. And then there's Herod who wanted to simply be entertained by Jesus and to see his supernatural power. He cared nothing for the truth. He cared nothing for justice. And then there was the Roman governor Pilate, who for the sake of his own reputation, ultimately handed an innocent man, the Lord Jesus, over to be flogged and crucified, and then had the audacity to claim that he was innocent of this man's blood. And then there were the Roman soldiers who also had their moment when they mocked Jesus and rammed a crown of thorns upon his head. And then there was, of course, the crucifixion itself, where the crowds in their arrogance and hatred shouted and mocked Jesus as he hung upon the cross, naked for all to see, drenched in his own blood. And I forgot to mention the two criminals on either side of Jesus who seemed to have no issue with reviling and mocking and belittling him as well. You see, from beginning to end, Good Friday is soaked, filled with human sin and depravity. And yet we call it good. Why? What reason would cause Christians to call this day and this event, the crucifixion of Jesus, a good day? 
Well, because Christians believe that though the wickedness of man was prevalent and very active on this day, the goodness of God was also at work, and it was the goodness of God that ultimately oversaw this day. It was the goodness of God that prevailed on this day. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, he's exhorting the Christians that he's writing to on the importance of suffering for righteousness' sake. So he's basically saying, if you're going to suffer as a Christian, make sure that it's for doing good and not for doing wrong. For he says in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than doing evil. And then what he does is he holds up Jesus Christ as the example par excellence in regards to what it looks like to suffer for righteousness' sake. And in holding up Christ, he articulates some of the most beautiful theological truths about what Jesus has accomplished on behalf of sinners. He articulates why Good Friday is actually good. And this morning, in order for us to, in order to prepare us to take of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, I simply want to just briefly, very shortly, meditate and contemplate these few words in 1 Peter 3, 18, where Peter says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The first thing we learn about Good Friday from this verse is this, that Jesus suffered. He suffered. We can sometimes jump over this, sometimes pass by it a little too quickly, but Jesus, the Savior of the world, God incarnate, God clothed in human flesh, suffered the effects of this fallen world. He suffered physically. He was beaten, flogged, crucified. He suffered emotionally. He was betrayed by a dear friend, abandoned by his other friends, and then he was mocked and spat upon and falsely accused. He suffered spiritually. As a man hanging upon that cross, he felt in his deepest soul God-forsakenness. He felt as though the light was snuffed out and darkness had consumed him. He felt that the heavens were silent when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And Peter then tells us why. Why? Was it because Jesus was deserving of such suffering? Was it because he was foolish? Was it because he was a rebel against the state? No. We're told he suffered once for sins. For sins. Not his own, but our sin. As Peter articulates one chapter earlier in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, when Christ hung upon that cross, he was suffering not for his own crimes, but our crimes. 
He was suffering for every evil thought, every evil word, and every evil deed. Now, in light of the fact that Peter has said that Christ has suffered for sins, I think it's important that we define what sin is. The scriptures define sin in many ways. For example, John in 1 John 3, 4 describes sin this way. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That is, sin is living in such a way that one has a complete disregard or indifference to God's moral law. One chooses to live contrary to God's moral law. But sin isn't simply breaking um, or disregarding some abstract law. Sin is personal because the God who gave us His law is a personal God. Sin is ultimately an act of defiance against a personal being, namely God. In Romans 1, 18-23, Paul articulates um, really this very horrifying picture that God's wrath stands over mankind. And he articulates why and and he describes the sin of humanity. But what's so fascinating in Romans 1, 18-23 is the personal nature that he ties to sin. Listen to these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God's wrath is revealed. It's been been brought forth from heaven against all ungodliness, godlessness, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So human beings, you and I, in our fallen sinful state, in our ungodliness, we intentionally suppress the truth. The truth pertaining to what? Pertaining to God. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. So we suppress the truth pertaining to who God is and what he has done. For what, can be, for, what can, what, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. So ungodliness, unrighteousness is related here to this. They did not honor Him as God. It's personal. Or give thanks to Him. Or give thanks to Him. It's personal. Their ungodliness and their unrighteousness is bound up with the fact that they did not honor God nor give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. you imagine that? They had the glory of God and they exchanged it for the creature rather than the creator. Sin is personal. I want you to imagine 
If I had a little toy car and I went to a Ferrari dealership and I said, or sorry, they had a toy car and I had a for real Ferrari and they said, we'll exchange your toy car for your Ferrari. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Give me the toy car. That's the idea here, right? We took that which is created and placed it as more valuable than the creator. We exchanged the creator for the creature. Sin is personal. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That falling short, you've probably heard, it's the idea of missing the mark. But I think it's actually better described from Romans 1. Falling short of the glory of God is exchanging the glory of God for things that are created. See, this idea of sin being personal against God is lost in our society today. People are outraged in our world. People are emotionally and morally indignant. They are morally outraged over poverty, injustice, inequality, prejudice, political corruption, abuses of power, abortion, human trafficking, war. And these are all great evils and we ought to be outraged. But hundreds and hundreds of millions of people feel absolutely no outrage, no moral indignation over a complete disregard for God and his glory. See, the the heinousness and repulsiveness of sin is fundamentally due to it being against the sinless, infinite, most holy, righteous God who is the source of all goodness and happiness in our world. That's what makes sin so horrifying. Jesus suffered for our sins because our sin is fundamentally against God. The God who made us. The God who sustains us. The God who has given us everything we have to enjoy. The God who allows the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, until you understand that your sin is fundamentally an offense against God, you will never understand the great vileness of your own heart. Jesus suffered for our sins because our sins were against God. As we read earlier in Isaiah 53, 5-6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our Iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, Peter seeks to further articulate the wonder of this truth with what he says next. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ, the sinless, spotless, pure, holy, righteous lamb, suffers for the spotted, filthy, impure, defiled, unrighteous lambs. 
The righteous one suffers in the place of the unrighteous. And through this act of obedience, the righteous one, by bearing the sin of the unrighteous, will make the unrighteous righteous. Paul articulates this in Romans 5, 18 to 19, where he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, That one trespass, of course, is Adam's sin. That one trespass, as Adam being the head of the human race, led to condemnation for all of the human race. So, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That one act of righteousness was Christ and His obedience to the will of His Father. For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake he, that is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous suffers in the place of the unrighteous, and in this act, he makes the unrighteous righteous. This is the great exchange of the good news. Christ takes our sin and bestows upon his perfect, and bestows upon us his perfect righteousness. As the letter to Diognetius captures so beautifully, this letter was written by a Christian to a man by the name of Diognetius in around uh, 175 AD. And he's, he's trying to explain to him the truths of the Christian faith. And this is what he says in regards to God's love and, and Jesus' death for sinners. Instead of hating us and rejecting us and remembering our wickedness against us, God showed how long-suffering he is. He bore with us, and in pity, he took our sins upon himself and gave his own son as a ransom for us. The holy for the wicked, the sinless for sinners, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For there was indeed anything except his righteousness that could have availed to cover our sins. In whom could we, in our lawlessness and ungodliness, have been made holy but in the Son of God alone? O sweet exchange, O unsearchable working, O benefits unhoped for, that the wickedness of multitudes should thus be hidden in the one righteous, and the righteousness of one should justify the countless wicked. The righteous one suffered and died in the place of the unrighteous. But why? What was the purpose? What was the goal of this exchange? Look at verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. The goal of redemption, the purpose for Jesus suffering and dying in our place, isn't simply the forgiveness of sins, as wonderful as that is. How sweet and precious it is to know the forgiveness of sins. 
If all that God did for us was have Jesus die for our sins on that cross, that would be enough to give him endless worship and praise and our complete devotion and allegiance. But God, through Jesus, has done so much more. Christ, through his suffering and death, has restored us to God, brought us back to God, reconciled us to God. Sin separated us from God. Sin brought hostility between heaven and earth. But Christ, through his suffering and death, has established peace between heaven and earth. You see, Christ didn't merely suffer so that you could know the forgiveness of sins. Christ suffered and died so that you could know intimately your creator. The fountain of love and goodness so that you could have communion with the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That you would be invited into this triune love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, this is why Good Friday is good. Because through Christ's suffering and death for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, we are now able to know God and commune with God and behold God in all of his wonder by faith. We can now draw near to God and live. And this is true for every person who has been united to Jesus Christ through faith. This is for every person who has believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. See, you may be here this morning and you may not be aware of this, but you were made to know the God who made you. You were made to have fellowship with him, to share in his joy and goodness. You were made to drink of him and find your delight and satisfaction in him. And Jesus has done everything necessary for you to know God. But you must humble yourself and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask God to have mercy on you, a sinner. Turn to him, trusting that he really did die for the sins of the world, that he really did die in the place of the unrighteous, and that he has done everything that is required in order for you to be brought to God. Will you come to him this morning? See, this is why Christians call Good Friday good. Because on this day, the Savior of the world Jesus Christ opened the heavens to mortal man so that mortal man could know the immortal, personal God. We were made to know him. As St. Augustine so beautifully said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O God. Christ has suffered and died so that we might find our rest in God. Let's pray. Father, I simply pray that that would be true of us this morning. That we would find our rest in you. That as we shortly come to the Lord's table, we would know 
that all of our sins have been dealt with, paid for, done away with, killed and destroyed upon the cross of Jesus. And that we would simply rest knowing that Christ has done all the work on our behalf. And that we, Lord, would have hearts of delight and thankfulness for you, the one who has redeemed us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.